my first question to you is, what did you think of the series Making a Murderer? I thought it was remarkably good filmmaking on what I assume was a shoestring budget, given what I know about the story of the filmmakers. Um, I don't know anything about making film, but I, I, I just was taken with the... Um, you know, the technical quality of it and also um, the fact that the subjects in the documentary carry the narrative entirely, that there's, there's no narrator's voice. This has created quite a stir nationwide and beyond. A lot of it has to do with the details of the story itself. Do you think that the movie is a fair representation of what happened to Stephen Avery and what happened in, in Wisconsin? Yes, uh, I do. It's a distillation, obviously, of both the Avery and the Dassey trials in 2007. But I think it 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 does a very good job of capturing the earlier 1985 wrongful conviction, and then the strongest evidence the state had in the 2007 murder prosecution, and the strongest points the defense made. Um, and posing, most importantly to me, posing bigger questions about systemic weaknesses and flaws in our system of criminal justice that can be viewed through the lens of, of these two compelling stories of individual cases. Um, so I, I thought I thought the filmmakers really did achieve something of broader importance than these two cases, as compelling as these two cases are. In my own opinion, having seen the series, it seems to show a very flawed legal process. As a lawyer, do you find that this happens more often in cases than people would think, or is this something of an anomaly? What happened to Stephen Avery? No, as a as a lawyer, I I think um, you see flaws and weaknesses in the system in almost every case. Now the incidentals are different in every case, um, but the overall pattern of um, people who are economically disadvantaged um, being the par- the primary grist for the criminal justice mill. Um, class, race, ethnicity, um, recent immigrant status being risk factors um, is very common. Um, The experience of the developmentally disabled or developmentally delayed um, is is really poignantly and powerfully captured, I think, in Brendan Dassey's um, case, but he's by no means alone. Um, The psychological uh, power and manipulation of, of police interview techniques um, is, a, is a frequently recurring problem. Um, inflammatory pretrial publicity here, unfortunately, much of it coming from the prosecution, but, you know, from many sources in other cases is a, is a commonly recurring problem. Uh, weaknesses in defense counsel. Um, you know, poor performance for any of a variety of uh, either personal or systemic reasons. When I say systemic, you know, caseloads um, that public defenders often have to carry are un- unconscionably high. 
um, in many parts of this country. So, I, I, you know, all of these potential points of failure of the system um, uh, occur in lots and lots of cases, again, with different incidental details. Um, judges um, too terribly aware of courtroom cameras or publicity. Um, police who come in with tunnel vision or suppositions about guilt and really then, you know, never do take a fully objective look um, at an investigation. These are all recurring problems that that can happen anywhere in this country. They don't happen in every case. And as I say, the, the details are always different, but the the broader pattern is pervasive. The disparities and the flaws seem to me to, to weigh pretty heavily on you in, in this particular series. So I'm wondering, how do you maintain faith in the system when you see these things occurring as frequently as they do? Well, I mean, I mean, I personally maintain faith in the system because for all of the human weaknesses that hobble the system or cause it to perform unreliably, we also have human strengths. Um, you see great acts of courage um, and dignity sometimes in my work um, by defendants, by their families, by victims and their families, by police officers. Um, sometimes by prosecutors, sometimes by defense lawyers, sometimes by judges. So it's not a uniformly bleak picture or experience. It's just a uniformly worrisome um, experience, uh, precisely because the system and every actor and every institution uh, that as an assemblage makes our criminal justice system, all of it, we're all human. Um, and that's that's both the problem and and the saving grace, I guess, in the end, uh, for me. Dean, when you look back on this particular case, is is there anything that you wish you had done differently? Oh, just about everything. <laughs> uh, as in every case, I lose. Um, you know, most of them are small things. Um, that you might do differently with the benefit of hindsight or just the benefit of, you know, experience as, as the years go by. Um, any big things? Um, I wish that uh, Jerry and I had been better prepared for the likelihood that the judge would, in the end, bend and allow the state to introduce um, testimony from the FBI, even though the, the testing itself was hasty and done mid-trial and and would leave us with no opportunity um, to do independent defense testing of our own. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know that we anticipated that as fully as we might have. Um, you know, and again, we're human too. We had our eyes on a whole lot during that trial, um, and you, you never see or catch it all. The prosecuting attorney, Ken Kratz, has been in, in the media a lot since the series came out, saying that there was significant and strong evidence that he presented at trial that was left out of the series. Was there significant evidence on your side that you felt was also left out of the series that, was, uh, that strengthened your case as it was presented? Sure, but, but less significant. Um, 
you know, in both the defense side and the prosecution side. I, I know what prosecution evidence there was. I sat through the trial, too. And the filmmakers gave the prosecution here the benefit of producing all of the most significant evidence they had. And less significant prosecution evidence was omitted. You, you can't condense a six-week trial into three or four or five hours of film um, without omitting something. I think the trade-offs they made uh, were were intelligent. And I, in fact, I can't imagine, um, you know, the things that Mr. Kratz is complaining were omitted that any one of them he would trade, you know, for evidence that was included. Indeed, these filmmakers included information pointing to guilt that never was evidence. You know, that wasn't proof at the trial. That was outside what the jury heard um, and and inadmissible. The most the most dramatic piece of that being Brendan Dassey's statement uh, to the police. The Avery jury didn't have that, shouldn't have heard it, didn't hear it um, at trial. So, you know, to me, recognizing that, that any film is a distillation of real life, um, the the editorial decisions that the filmmakers made were fair to both sides. Having seen the series then, did, does that put this entire case for you in different perspective? I mean, did you learn things about this case, even though you were heavily involved in it by watching the series? I don't know that I learned anything um, from watching it. I mean, because I did live it. What What the film allows you to do is to pause, you know, to freeze a frame, to rewind, listen to something again, watch something again. And that, that is helpful. Um, the, the, you know, film also captures unblinkingly and uh, unforgivingly our facial expressions, our, you know, the micro expressions um, that flit across our faces, um, and those are at least interesting. I don't, you know, I don't know in the end that um, they do anything more than support intuitive judgments, but they are interesting. Recently, the filmmakers were on television saying that a juror has told them that they believe that Stephen Avery was not proven guilty and that they believe he was framed. You know, where does this case stand for him? Does he have any options to get out of prison that you see right now? I'm aware of that juror, too. Um, And unfortunately, um, in my view, um, that's exactly the kind of information that does not move courts to set aside convictions, that does not overcome this system's enormous um, deference to finality, um, you know, the, just the, 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 the primacy or near primacy of finality as a value in the system just isn't overcome by that kind of thing typically. Not that it's not worth exploring, and we will, um, but probably Stephen's realistic hopes for a new trial lie in the category of newly discovered evidence, which which might, you know, one subcategory of that would be something new factual, somebody coming forward with a secret that they've not disclosed in 10 years or 
something they saw or heard. Um, and the other subcategory of newly discovered evidence probably you, you could describe as scientific advance, um, new testing that could be done today but couldn't have been done in 2007 or earlier, or um, the, the, the practical ability to do um, retesting now uh, by way of availability or, of resources uh, or an offer to do it for free where it, it would have been financially impossible for us at the time. But I think, you know, I think newly discovered evidence in both those subcategories probably um, present Stephen's most realistic hope of, um, you know, not dying in prison. As I was watching the series, one of many jaw-dropping moments for me uh, was when your colleague was in the evidence room watching them open the evidence with the blood vial that seems to have been tampered with. Now, as a viewer, you see something like that, and you, you you can't help but think, okay, everything kind of goes out the window here. This this seems really bad. Can you tell me what that that evidence meant to you and to your case? Well, I don't know. The jury heard it all. It it um, it stunned both me and Jerry. Um, it it remained then and remains now largely unexplained uh, to the two of us why the seal was broken, why the you know, what looked like a pinhole from a syringe um, in the top of the seal. Um, the jurors heard it, and I guess you'd have to ask those 12 people uh, what they made of it in the end. What do you think the involvement of the county authorities may have been in framing your client? I don't know. I You know, and I can't add to the evidence that we adduced at trial um, suggesting that and the inferences that it supported eight and a half years later, I, you know, I, I can't add to that. And I, and I won't try to um, try the case again, eight and a half years after the fact, but this documentary, I think gives a fair glimpse of um, the concerns we raised, the answers the prosecution did and did not have. As I understand it, you remain in touch with Stephen, and I'm just wondering if you can tell me a little bit about the, the nature of the correspondence that you have with him and, and why it is you're, you're keeping in touch with him and what you talk about with him. Jerry and I both are in touch with him and his family. We have been all along, really, since the direct appeal ended. Um, we, we've given him informal help on finding things from our files or you know, helping him recall where something was in evidence. Um, we're, we're giving him more formal help now, and I suspect that, you know, now there's a real, you know, an active concrete role for lawyers and that Jerry and I both will be more formally working um, for Stephen as we go forward. But, you know, both of us, uh, the money... The money was gone in, in 2006 when he gave it to us, and we understood that. Um, but it's also a, a case that both of us carry uncomfortably, I think, in part because, the, you know, the sentence was so heavy in the end, um, but just in part because um, Stephen's experience is somebody who undeniably spent 18 years in a 
in a cage for a crime he didn't commit um, pulls at anyone who um, defends the underdog and and works for the accused in our criminal justice system. It better pull at you. Um, if it doesn't pull at you, you shouldn't be doing this work. Does it appear as though Stephen, who throughout the course of the series, for the most part, when he's speaking for himself, seems relatively calm, um, does he have uh, encouragement based on what's happened as a result of this? And uh, is he newly encouraged that something may change for him while he's in prison? I think he feels hope. Um, I don't know that Stephen would be able to pinpoint the the sources or causes of hope, but I I do think he feels hope. He is by nature a stoic man um, and uh, someone who's without a facade. The, you know, the Stephen Avery that viewers of this documentary see is the same Stephen Avery that Jerry and I saw in, you know, hundreds of hours probably spent with him. Um, There is no other Stephen Avery. Well, he goes through, you know, he certainly goes through low spells. Um, I I think he does feel some hope at this point. What's your takeaway from from what happened to Brendan Dassey in this story? I mean, he seems to, uh, you mentioned before, the disparities that exist, and maybe there's a kind of an unfair playing field for those who get involved in the legal system. That was extremely evident based on what I saw in the series was happening to him. Um, and that also seemed to have a big impact on you. And I just wanted to ask you a little bit about that. Were you, were you shocked by anything you saw in the series in terms of what was happening to him? And, and what has that inspired you to do since then, if anything? Not shocked if what that imports is surprise, but appalled. Until Brendan was fortunate enough to get his current group of lawyers, um, until that point, I would have a very hard time, Scott, if you asked me, pointing to any aspect of Brendan Dassey's experience from the time the police pulled him out of school that day in Michigan to the time um, his conviction was affirmed on appeal that didn't appall me. I don't know that I could point to one aspect of his experience with the police or the court system that doesn't appall me um, until you get to his current defense team. Um, And boy, if there's somebody who deserves good lawyers and, you know, a break going his way um, at this point, it's Brendan Dassey. Uh, one last question that I have. I see that uh, hundreds of thousands of people have signed petitions uh, in favor of, of some sort of an action that would, that would either pardon Stephen Avery or get him a new trial. It's hard for me, even having seen the series and having my own opinions about what I saw and what happened, to, to believe that I would know enough about it to sign a petition to get a man out of prison. And I just wanted to get your take on that, too. It It seems like you know, people are, are, are favoring your side of things based on this documentary. Can people know enough about it to, to sign a petition? Well, not all people are, are favoring our side. Um, I, I imagine there's a, a very tumultuous debate going on out there 
um, in social media and elsewhere about this. Um, and to me, it's just a, it's it's a really interesting cultural phenomenon now that today, you know, in 2016, if I'm upset by something I see on TV that strikes me as an injustice, I don't have to just stew about that anymore like I would have had to in 1986. Um, I, I don't just have to throw something at my TV and go to bed angry. Today, I can... I can at least have the illusion of participating in trying to rectify a wrong. I can sign a petition online. I can get involved in all kinds of discussion threads and, um, you know, online um, conversations uh, about this. Now, in the end, how much of that is responsible or productive or helpful is for you know everyone who participates in it to decide his or her own limits and reasons but 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 it is just an interesting cultural phenomenon that now people um, at least have a perception that they can act to try to change something that makes them unhappy and and of course you know trials and um, court cases are only, you know, one tiny uh, little example of the areas in which social media um, and and the world online allow us to participate in that way. What kind of an impact has this had on you, all this attention that the show is getting and that uh, now you are also getting? It's been disorienting and unexpected. Um, um, I'm, I'm probably over a thousand, I'm sure I'm over a thousand emails from people I don't know around the world um, who, who have reached out to me for one reason or another. Um, and I anticipated some media interest, so I was prepared, um, at least to a large degree, for that. I did not anticipate um, the personal interest and just the personal availability that um, the internet, you know, where my email address easily can be found, or my, you know, um, it has it has created um, the, the sort of personal connection to people I will never meet, um, uh, but who, for whatever, you know, for one reason or another, wanted to reach out and say something to another person. Well, Dean, I, I'm one of those people, one of those thousands who were in your email inbox, and I thank you for, for taking the email and for taking the time to chat with me today. I greatly appreciate it. Scott, thanks for talking with me.